This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley with our last episode of the week, bringing you the best bits from my Times Radio show. Of course, if you've got the time, you can listen to the whole show at 10 till 1, Monday to Thursday, which is like the podcast, but quite three times as long. Uh, you've been getting in touch all week about where you are listening to the show uh, Luke gets in touch to say I'm, I was listening to the podcast with people telling you the exotic locations they are listening in well I think I can beat them I'm listening whilst inside the control room of the Large Hadron Collider at CERN trying to solve the mysteries of the universe while listening to Danny Finkelstein I mean that's that's pretty good that's pretty good can anyone top that uh, Tarquin gets in touch I like this to the Red Box podcast without scrambling here in Snowdonia who reminds me why I like living here and not London as I used to uh, hello to Tarquin Shipley uh, if you want to get in touch let me know where you're listening to the podcast email me matt.chorley at times.radio and uh, I'll try and say hello to you on the podcast next week right coming up today how happy are you right now how happy if you've been in the past 10 years you may remember david cameron ring any bells he used to be kind of big around here 10 years ago he launched what became known as the happiness index the office for national statistics measuring our personal well-being and life satisfaction and the hope the government might focus on that too 10 years on what difference has it made we speak to someone from the ons we also speak to the government's happiness czar and someone from the happiest and the least happy places in the country. We'll do that in a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Thursday, it's Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott. One thing that really struck me is that both of you have written this week um, on completely separate topics, but both about the fact that we're quite judgy. India at the weekend, you wrote about uh, fat shaming and our sort of social obsession with with weight. Uh, and then, James, you've written today about the, the stigma of psychosomatic illness. And again, you know, the, the way that we we judge people all the time. And I just wonder, let's start with you, first of all, India. What can we do to make us just less judgy of other people? Hmm, That's a really good question to which there is no um, <laughs> answer, actually. Um, in, in terms of fat shaming, I've always sort of occupied quite a kind of middly position because I've always thought that the idea, I mean, I'm not keen on everybody feeling shamed all the time by things that really, 
you know, should be irrelevant to most people's lives. Um, but I wrote the column um, largely about the idea that um, in the 1970s, when women entered the world, that, you know, people have always wanted, women have always wanted to be thin, but that it reached a, the equation of um, thinness with being healthy reached a sort of peak in the 1970s when women entered the uh, white collar workforce in large numbers and were obviously constantly judged on their looks, etc. And so the idea, it's not my idea, it's the idea of a woman called Virginia Soul Smith in America who writes about diet culture. Um, the idea is that those women, you know, are mothers, grandmothers, aunts, whatever, in the 1970s and 1980s, effectively spent their entire life on a diet. Um, and that that's kind of trickled down and then trickled down through the generations. So Generation X women are uh, still fairly concerned about weight. But then it sort of starts petering out or if not petering out, at least being questioned by younger people. And I thought it was just really interesting. I mean, I don't think that the quest for thinness is going to go anywhere and I don't think we're going to all suddenly stop dieting overnight. But I think something interesting is happening and it's to do with being less judgy. Not sure we're quite there yet, but I think something is happening. Oh, no, my phone's going. <laughs> so you answer I, I, that. Somebody's phoning to tell you you're on the radio. Um, James, yeah. you've, written, you've written about um, fat shaming before and how it's sort of the last... Um, uh, the, the last thing that we that people still feel able to be sort of pu publicly shamed about. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with India. I think the problem is is understanding, basically. It's kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around the fact that I think if we we think people are fat because they eat too much and they lack the willpower. But I always think the, the way to frame the question is, as a society, we've got so much fatter in the last 40, 50 years. And just think, what's more likely? We've just suffered this massive collective failure of willpower or... It's just been the case that companies have got better at marketing uh, sugary, fatty foods at us and our supermarket aisles have been filled with them. And we've just, it's just human willpower, which has remained the same, has just been overwhelmed by people who spent their entire careers working out how to make, make us eat bad food, sugary food. And I just think it's that kind of disconnect where we have to understand that each of us individually is the, is the sort of victim of this larger social trend, not that we are all personally responsible for being fat because our willpower has failed i think it's trying to get our heads around that disconnect and on your your comment today on psychosomatic illnesses james it was one of those things where i read it thinking i can't remember the last time i even read something on this on this subject um and yet you know something that affects so many people yeah uh, especially and especially in hospitals i mean i was fascinated researching it that it's a constant across all human cultures because i think we tend to assume it's something that maybe is um that's popped up in in the in the West because you know people have too much time on their hands they spend their time googling symptoms but it's a constant thing in human cultures and again I think um, the problem with psychosomatic illnesses or as I think people prefer to say now functional disorders is that it's a way of being ill that kind of contradicts our understanding of how illness works we're very used to the idea that a virus can attack your body and make you ill or a tumor can make you ill or a bacterial infection can make you ill and we've recently got our heads around the idea that you can be mentally ill and that even if your body looks fine, you can be suffering in your brain. But I think this sort of idea that actually what, psych what psychosomatic illness or functional disorders show is that our bodies and our minds are incredibly connected with each other. And that's just not an idea that comes easily to most people. And therefore it's kind of slipped through the cracks. And I think in other, in other cultures reading about it, it's not something that seems that mysterious, but because 
I think in our Western societies, we have this very deeply ingrained view that perhaps is so deeply ingrained, we barely even understand that we have it, that our minds and our bodies are separate and those things don't really interact. Um, I think that just means... As you pointed out, I started to think, well, yeah, that is basically what we think. And then as you point out, I thought it was a great phrase that you had about how, um, you know, when you're... Uh, your eyes start spraying water when your mind has a sad thought mm. or um, your body puts off an illness until you've done an exam or a big uh, life event. Um, what, do you, what do you think about this, India? I think it's really, really interesting. I think um, it's a really fascinating column. If anyone hasn't read it, I think they, um, I think they should forthwith. Um, I think that obviously, I mean, it's so obvious that the mind and the body, when you, when you think about it, it's so obvious that the mind and body don't function as separate entities, completely kind of unaware of each other. Um, and I think, again, I mean, it comes back to judginess again, you know, and I think that maybe is quite specifically British. I've got, I don't know, but my sense is that we really, really like saying, don't make a silly fuss, it's not real. You know, it's a really kind of... Um, it's a really overwhelming desire, particularly when, you know, big, massive illnesses are going on all around us, as they are at the, at the moment. The idea that you could be undone by something intangible and even sometimes quite hard to diagnose is really difficult to get your head around. And, um, you know, hugely increases people's suffering, because really what we should be doing is saying you're saying you're ill. I believe you. I suppose, yeah, I suppose that's where the two, the, your two pieces sort of overlap, whether it's, you know, uh, psychosomatic illness or um, uh, you wrote a lot about uh, Nikki Graham at the weekend and um, the plant yeah, yeah, anorexia. I mean, I think... The sort of the pull yourself together strain of Britishness is, is so yeah. destructive. Pull yourself together and also eat less and move around more, which is what people always say about dieting. You know, it's the reason people are overweight or indeed underweight is in their head. It's that it's the, the the fact that their body is larger or smaller than society would like is a is a is a side effect almost. You know, it's all in the head. People eat overeat for comfort because they equate food with love because they equate food with safety. I mean, you know, millions and millions of reasons that we can't go into here. But it is all in the mind first before it manifests in the body. I yes, think. It's, it, yeah, uh, J James. Hello. Hello, James. Are you yes. There? Yeah. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> I was, just, I was just bringing you into the conversation. I know what you're doing. You're sitting in my chair, spinning around, going, oh, yeah, no, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, let's move on um, and, and talk about um, some of this, you know, that we've heard in the last 24 hours. Johnny Mercer, um, who's spoken to exclusively to almost everyone, I think it's fair to say. I think actually Times, I think Times Radio was first. Johnny Mercer uh, resigning from... Um, uh, the government or was told to resign and then wouldn't, but was then sacked. He was the veterans minister. He was unhappy with what the government was doing um, uh, to protect veterans, particularly those who'd served in Northern Ireland. He said yesterday that the government is the most distrustful, awful government, uh, awful environment I've ever worked in. Uh, let's take a quick listen to what he, what he had to say to Times Radio yesterday. This whole trust thing, Tom, I mean, you know, I, I see people talking about it. This is the most distrustful, uh, awful environment uh, I've ever worked in in government um uh, almost nobody tells the truth well there we are i mean uh, that was just a tape of what i just read out but anyway uh, so that was johnny mercer speaking to our, my colleague tom newton dunn on times radio yesterday um but part of the reason why i wanted to discuss this with you is when you when you, you were remotely surprised uh, that it turns out that politics isn't you know nobody trusts each other in politics india <laughs> 
Um, I think that uh, generally there's a problem with uh, people who used to be soldiers uh, going into politics. And I think the problem is because where whatever level you're at in the army, everything is about obeying orders unquestioningly. There's no subtlety. It's it's hungry hippos, right? You're just banging the thing. It's hungry hippos. <laughs> politics is chess. Politics is all about saying one thing and meaning another. It's incredibly kind of snaky and sneaky, and it's all about inference and subtlety and what might happen four moves ahead. And I think often people who have been in the armed forces don't get on terribly well with uh, becoming politicians because it's too it's 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 kind of the complete opposite of what they've been trained to do. So I'm not at all surprised, and nor am I surprised that politics is a cesspit because politics is a cesspit. So you know he's right to say it, but I think there's something else at play because he sounds so injured in the clip that you just played, and generally all over the airwaves. Uh, he sounds so sort of surprised and shocked and injured. And I think that is because he's being asked to play a game which is not the opposite of the game he was trained for. That's really inter That's a really interesting point. I hadn't really uh, appreciated. James, were you shocked and appalled to discover that uh, politics, uh, you can't trust everyone in politics? Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I'd never heard of that before. <laughs> I, also, I also loved how he said he'd spent 36 hours working it out, uh, which made me think that he must hardly yes. be the Sherlock Holmes of government sleaze. <laughs> kind of picture him there at his desk with, you know, the Green Sill scandal, Jennifer Arcuri, and he's sort of looking at it all, stroking his chin, thinking, I think this might not be entirely decent and honourable. And then 36 <laughs> hours later, he's finally sort of decided that that's what's going on. Um, yeah, I, I'm not surprised. I, I agree with it. I think India's point is fascinating. I agree... I agree he does seem that he it does seem he's been naive about the character of Boris Johnson, who I think most observers agree will be your best friend when you're helpful to him, as he was to Johnny Mercer um when he was supporting him for his leadership bid. And then when you're not helpful to him, then you're not helpful to him, which is which is is an element of politics, I think is also probably especially pronounced in the character of Boris Johnson, and it does seem like he was uh, unusually naive, I think. Mm -hmm. It was also, I think, I mean it, I mean, clearly, a lot of what goes on in in government is a bit house of cards and people saying one thing, meaning another. There is also, I suppose, the, the question of, um, you know, when Johnny Mercer is the Minister for Veterans, he thinks at that point, money for veterans, the office mm. for veterans, that's the most important thing. But even across government, even when everyone is on the same team, there are competing demands. There's competing demands for money, there's competing demands for time, for face time, you know, um, with the Prime Minister and whatever else there might be. So um, yeah, maybe it's just maybe it's just slightly the nature of, of how politics works and, and now he's, he's learned that lesson. Just before I left, let you both go, I just wanted to ask when have you both been happiest in the past 10 years? Because that's what we're doing is the, is the text in today. Ooh. I, it, that's quite hard to pinpoint because I'm pretty chipper most of the time maybe um <laughs> in the last in the last five or six years you know i really loved moving out of london i really loved moving to the country that made me See, very that's very that's interesting that's really interesting what about you james apart from being able to sit in my seat and spin around well before what, before this well with with really sad deep irony actually it was january last year i kept going oh my god everything's so great I'm living in London, having a wonderful time in London. There's so many cafes and restaurants to go to. I literally said this almost every week. I was like, can you believe we get to be young in London? This is brilliant. And then there was a global pandemic and then uh, I stopped being so happy. 
as India Knight from the Sunday Times, James Marriott, Deputy Books Editor from the Times. You can read them both. You just need to get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, 10 years of the Happiness Index. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, how happy are you? Happiness, happiness, the greatest gift that I possess. I thank the Lord that I've been blessed with more than my share of happiness. Exactly 10 years ago, Britain started measuring our life satisfaction. This was David Cameron announcing plans for what became known is the Happiness Index. Today, the government is asking the Office of National Statistics to devise a new way of measuring well-being in Britain. And so from April next year, we'll start measuring our progress as a country, not just by how our economy is growing, but by how our lives are improving, not just by our standard of living, but by our quality of life. Oh, happiness, happiness, the greatest gift that I possess. I thank the Lord that I've been blessed with more than my share of happiness. So we just heard David Cameron in November 2010 announcing plans for what became known as his Happiness Index. From April the following year, a decade ago this month, the Office for National Statistics started collecting data to make it a reality. So... How does it work? And over 10 years, what have they found? I'm joined now by Sarah Coates, a Senior Research Officer on Wellbeing at the ONS. Hi, Sarah. Hi there. So how do you even start with something like this? The Prime Minister says, I want us to also, alongside GDP and the economy and lots of, you know, and unemployment and all of that, I now want the Office of National Statistics to measure well-being, happiness, life satisfaction. How do you go about doing it? How, what questions do you ask and how many people are involved? So happiness is just one of the four measures we use at the Office of National Statistics when measuring personal well-being, and that's because happiness, alongside anxiety, another measure we use, are short-term indicators of how we're doing day by day, and we know that can vary depending on what you're doing yesterday. It varies day by day, week by week. 
but we also allow people to take a bit of a step back and reflect on how life is doing in general. So we also look at life satisfaction and feelings of worthwhile and whether things they're doing in life is worthwhile as well. So that, uh, that idea being, so one of the questions is how happy did you feel yesterday, which, you know, that could be down to the weather or did you have a particularly good lunch? Uh, whereas how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? Uh, to what extent do you feel what you do in your life is worthwhile? That's a bit more reflective over over sort of a, a, a longer period. And what um, what trends, I mean, looking at the, the chart from uh, going all the way back to uh, this time 10 years ago, there seems to be a, a general trend upwards in terms of both short-term happiness and long-term life satisfaction, at least until the pandemic hit. So let's we'll, we'll talk about the pandemic in a sec. But on, on the whole, there's a trend upwards, but it's a bit up and down. Is there any way of knowing what those what causes those ups and downs? Is it correlated yeah. to anything in particular? Yeah, so you're right. Um, at first, we did see a general year-on-year -year improvement across all four measures. Um, until about the last three years where we've actually started to see that level off and plateau a bit. Um, and we know there's so many factors that do come into play with that. And it's to do with employment, the relationships we keep, uh, self-reported health, lots of factors coming in, um, as well as that in general improvement links back to um, coming out of that economic downturn. And that coincides with economic um, improvement and personal wellbeing improving as well. And in terms of the, the pandemic, you know, you know, when you're looking at a set of data, it's not what that's gradually creeping up or it's levelling off. And then there's a big change. And you can really see it in the last 12 months, uh, both for happiness uh, and life satisfaction. They both uh, came down pretty sharply. Anxiety shot up, as you would expect, as we suddenly found ourselves in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, but, uh, but a slight reverse more recently as well. Yeah, so you're right. We've really seen um, personal well-being being affected in the pandemic, and it has reached some of the worst levels that we've actually ever recorded right back from 2011. And we know that there's particular factors, as I say, that affect personal well-being. So if we think back to when I mentioned employment, lockdown, um, we've had jobs that are affected, unfortunately, by furlough and redundancies, um, lockdown, we've been told to stay at home. So those relationships we keep with friends and family and not being able to have those you can really understand how that's affected personal well-being and why we saw such a big change at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, yeah, and like like you said, the, you know, happiness going down, anxiety going up. If people are wondering how you go about doing this, you asked the question overall, how satisfied are you with life nowadays? How happy do you feel yesterday? What do you do? Is it like a scores out of 10? Yeah, so that's scaled on a score from 0 to 10, where 10 is um, you're feeling really happy um, there is not at all and then we create an average based on everyone that's responded to a survey and that we then monitor that average over time and that yeah that's it's it sort of it's sort of bumped around a bit it, that happiness uh, got up to 7.57 it's you know it dropped uh to what was about 7.3 and it, it's picked up again to just above 7.4 uh um in the in the most recent uh, results and we'll see if as we come out of lockdown, the sun comes out, you know, people can go back to work, see their friends and family. Maybe that'll start having an impact. Um, Sarah, how would you rate your current happiness out of 10? Is that something <laughs> you must think about that all the time? You probably think about it too much, given that this is your job. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely feeling a lot happier now being able to go and see people outside. The sun is shining. Um, definitely well-being's on the up. But we've got lots of challenges ahead as we recover from the pandemic and to start thinking how we can help um, improve everyone's well-being.
Uh, that was uh, discussing the old idea of uh, the, uh, the happiness index with Sarah, Sarah Coates, a senior researcher on wellbeing at the Office for National Statistics. In a moment, we're going to find out the places uh, with the highest and the lowest life satisfaction. Is that where you live? Uh, we'll find out in just a sec. But first, let's speak to Lord Layard, an economist and also the government's happiness czar. Uh, good morning. Uh, good morning. I'm not sure about the last title. <laughs> Somebody else invented that, not the government. <laughs> Oh, well, there we are. Well, you could be our happiness czar instead. Um, uh, what do you make of the old... Because you're, you're someone who, who, who's written a lot about the importance of uh, well-being and, and happiness. Do you think this the, the happiness index, this sort of getting, you know, sort of trying to apply science to the to, to feelings, is that something that, that can, can work? Has it worked in the past yeah. 10 years? Yes, I, th I think it's absolutely essential. Uh, I mean, the idea that um, what we want is, is a happy society is a very old idea going back uh, 300 years. But it's only recently become possible to apply it because we've been able to measure how happy people are by asking them, for example, uh, the question about life satisfaction that you've just been discussing. So that's been done for about 40 or 50 years. Uh, we now know a huge amount, of course, about what causes people to have lives that satisfy them. And that means that we can make the goal of well-being, uh, the goal of public policy, and, and of course, something which um, we also use in thinking about how to conduct our own lives, how to promote our own well-being, and those are the people uh, that who, whose lives we touch. So this is a, a very, very exciting new science. Um, I've written about it in my book, Can We Be Happier? And I think we have major new lessons about the priorities that we should be giving in our own lives and the priorities that government should be adopting, which are very different from what people are following at the moment. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll come on to that in a moment. Let's just take a listen to a bit more of that speech by David Cameron. When he announced this whole thing 10 years ago, uh, that, um, that the government was going to start start measuring this. And he, he set out three examples of, of where he thought sort of government policy did affect people's uh, life satisfaction. Let's just take a listen to what he had to say. Let me give you three examples where I, I really do believe there is a link between what politics and government does and people's happiness, contentedness and quality of life. One is, I do believe, if you give people more control over their life, if they feel they have more of a say, they're authors of their own destiny, that actually increases people's self-worth and well-being. Now, that has a real effect on, for instance, education policy or health policy. We should be trying to give more power to the patient and the parent to have choice over how they're treated, where their kids go to school, and the rest of it. So that has a real-life effect. A second one was mentioned, relationships. It's absolutely right that people's well-being often depends on the quality of their relationships. So we should ask as a country, why do we spend billions and billions on the consequences of family breakdown, but so little on trying to help families stay together? You know, £20 million on the budget of Relate, but £20 billion on the consequences of social breakdown. So again, if we think about well-being rather than just GDP, we might actually uh, change that. Another one is, is planning policy. People definitely, the way you... Your happiness, contentedness, well-being does partly depend on your surroundings. And uh, your surroundings depend on planning policy and depend on how much you're involved and how much you think you have a say over your neighbourhood and what it looks like. So therefore, I would say give people more power over their planning policy and, and neighbourhood and they will be more contented. Now, those are three things where actually government policy, uh, I believe, needs to change and is changing. 
And it's those three things are as much about well-being as they are about um, economic growth. So that was David Cummins speaking in uh, 2010, announcing the plans to, to measure well-being. Lord, Lord Layard, was he right when he talks about those, those specifics, uh, the, about the decision-making that we have over our lives, uh, relationships and planning policy? Or is there a little bit of every politician will claim that the particular interests that they have in terms of policy uh, will definitely be better for the nation's well-being? Well, I think he was basically right, but I think there's more to it than that. Um, mental health, for example, is the biggest single determinant of, of uh, whether a person is happy or not. Um, we need far more priority to be given that, uh, far more priority to be given to helping families uh, to be coherent and avoid domestic violence and these kind of, of, of tragedies. So what is affecting people's lives and their happiness more than anything else is their health, mental and physical and their uh, personal relationships in the family, at work, uh, and in the community. Uh, and that's why, when we're thinking about the limited amount of money that the Chancellor of the Exchequer's got, um, his priorities should be what you might call the social infrastructure, the services we're offering to children and young people, uh, mental health for adults and young people, uh, support for old people, to avoid uh, the terrible loneliness uh, that affects so many of them. These should be the priorities rather than uh, what unfortunately at the moment is the top priority, which is physical infrastructure. We're about to spend a hundred billion doubling physical infrastructure payment at the same time we're cutting all these social services. This isn't what would be indicated if you thought that the well-being of the people was the aim of the government. I suppose that's the thing is that you know, nobody gets up in the morning and thinks brilliant that train line's been built. Uh, whereas if you know uh, the you know the libraries reopened, that's probably going to have more impact on them on them uh, personally in terms of services. What for you is the sort of single biggest thing that the government could do right now to make us happier as a country? Oh, I think to improve mental health services. I mean, people are desperate, um, and there is are very good evidence-based treatments that could be being uh, offered to everybody uh, who is suffering uh, from not only depression or terrible anxieties of various forms, but also, of course, from addiction um, and from family conflict. Um, and um, these are not being offered either to uh, as many adults as need them, nor uh, uh, at all to children unless they pass the incredibly high threshold to get supported by CAMS. So here's the principle that we should have in the National Health Service, uh, that you are as likely to receive evidence-based treatment if your problem is mental as if it's physical. We are nowhere, nowhere near it. Uh, with less than half the people with mental health problems are in treatment. Uh, this is deeply shocking and we could do a huge amount to improve people's happiness by simply giving them that support, including a much faster rollout of the child mental health program, so-called mental health support teams in schools uh, that is going very slowly. And I would like to see a separate mental health budget within the NHS, uh, which was growing by at least 5% a year in real terms. Uh, I think that that would really stop the, the, the shocking thing which happens, which is that whenever uh, the uh, local commissioning groups uh, feel under financial pressure, who's the first 
uh, port of call will they cut the mental health budget uh, we've got to stop that I'm sure lots of people would would agree with you on that, but that's sort of you know looking after the health of the nation. I just wonder, just finally, if there is sometimes a tension in the, what makes Boris Johnson happy uh, might not make you happy. Or <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of a of an example uh, that, that possibly one that's broadcastable. But you, do you know what I mean? It's such a sort of subjective thing. One person might love the rolling countryside; someone else might love um, you know a building a racetrack or a, or a, a skate park or, or, or something like that. So what, is it really the government's role to make us happy or is it just to keep us safe and healthy and then to let us get on in our lives? Well, I think the aim, of course, is to help people to help themselves. So we're not talking about a nanny state where somebody's constantly holding your hand. We're talking about um, crisis services available to people when they need them, just as we've now got round to the idea in this century, last century, of providing them help when they're uh, physically ill, providing them help when they have a, a, a problem, uh, mental health uh, or other kind of uh, relationship problem. Uh, but uh, it really isn't the, um, it isn't, as, as one of the reviewers of uh, one of my books said, uh, um, you know, the, the, the happiness police <laughs> or the bureaucracy. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's, um, it's having available to people um, help when they are desperate. And we, in the past, we, we had this idea uh, originally, the state just defended us, basically. Uh, then we had the idea that it should help people to be good workers and it took on education, it then took on health. And I think it should now take on the role of helping people to become the, the best um, that they can in terms of their ability not only to enjoy their own lives, but of course to contribute to the lives of other people. So I, I think that it's got to start very young with a serious um, professional teaching of, of how to promote your own well-being and the well-being of others uh, in school, right back in, in primary schools, at least uh, an hour a week. We've got good evidence-based materials. Let's see them rolled out uh, with properly trained teachers uh, throughout the school system. Uh, I think this is the basis for developing a, a self-reliant, uh, population, not not one that is expecting to have their hand held all the time, but where there is a hand on offer when you're in desperate need. Uh, just uh, just finally, uh, we've been asking people all uh, morning, um, when have you been happiest in the last 10 years? Are you a happy person? I suppose you write about this stuff all the time. You'd hope that you're a happy person. When have you been happiest in the last 10 years? <laughs> on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, That's yeah, a good answer. I, I, Lots of people I, say I things love, like that. I love my, I love my holidays. <laughs> exactly right. We can get away from worrying about all this sort of stuff. Uh, Lord Layard, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Richard Layard there, uh, author of the book, Can We Be Happier? Evidence and uh, Ethics. Uh, right, coming up next, we're going to speak to two people. One who lives in apparently the happiest place to live and the other in the less good place to live. We'll do that next on Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. Yeah, we're taking a look at how, uh, for the last 10 years, the Office of National Statistics has been measuring life satisfaction across the UK as part of what became known as David Cameron's Happiness Index. 
And we thought we'd finish by uh, looking at where are the best and worst places to live. So apparently the place with the highest rate of life satisfaction is the South Hams in South Devon. We can speak now to Sandy Marshall from the South Hams Society. Hi, Sandy. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. I mean, I imagine you're just giddy. Uh, constantly living down the South Hams. Actually, I have to say it's absolutely true because most of the <laughs> South Hams is in an area of outstanding natural beauty. And every day I walk along the cliffs at the moment, which are stunning um, with rapeseed and yellow gorse, which is yellow, a clear blue sea. And I couldn't ask for anything better. I see the horizon. It's, it's not all built over. We've got small communities, villages that have evolved over hundreds of years. And there's people who have lived there for generations, so they probably got their families close and have been able to have support during the pandemic. Um, we've got winding lanes covered with primroses, so you can't go too fast on that. You've got high banks on either side. Uh, we've got small local shops, and when you're out for a walk, people look you in the eye, they smile, and they say good morning, even if you're a stranger. Um, and so the whole atmosphere is really good. Um, and I think probably one of the key things is that people feel they've got time. Um, oh, the pace of life yeah. is slower. There's a, there's a local saying that actually we don't have anything as fast as manana. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and lots of good local produce, um, you know, independent shops. Um, I mean, personally, I wouldn't live anywhere else. No, I, I, I know the area reasonably well. And I have to, although it was a slightly longer ago than 10 years, one of my uh, happiest memories was doing a walk along the south, on, the, on the south coast uh, path with my good friend uh, Nick through the South Hams from Dartmouth. And it was, uh, like you said, on a day like today, the sun is shining, the sea is blue. You could, have, you could spend a small fortune going abroad for, for that yeah. view and sense of being, um, yeah, just in the most amazing place in the world. Uh, so that's, um, so, uh, stay there, Sandy. We'll come back to you in a second. That's, uh, Sandy is in uh, South Hams, the place of the highest rate of uh, life satisfaction. Let's go down to the place of the lowest rate of life satisfaction. Apparently it's Thanet in Kent. Brendan Martin uh, runs the Broadstairs Beach House in uh, in uh, Thanet. Uh, hi, Brendan. Good morning, Matt. Uh, yeah, you, oh, you sound quite chipper, Brendan. Uh, despite yes, this, um, about, you, you don't feel like you've got the world on your shoulders. Unhappiest place in Britain, which I have to say I don't think is true. Good, go on then, sell to us then, sell, uh, sell Thanet to us. Well, I'll tell that we're I'm a bit like uh, your last uh, person, sorry, I've forgotten her name. Uh, we're sitting Sandy, here in the sun, yep. I'll be going out for a walk on the beach when I finish talking to you. One of our 14 very sandy blue flag beaches. It's um, The people in here are, on the whole, lovely. I mean, every part of Britain must have its problems. We have our own problems as well as anywhere else, but nothing uh, as, you know, greater than most parts of the, of the country. Um, so I was, I was a bit shocked by the comments that it was um, a miserable place. It's, it's not a miserable <laughs> place. It's a, it's a happy place. I've lived here for eight years um, very happily. Um, would I say it's the happiest period of my life? Well, at my age, I've had quite a few periods of my life, so I may have had happier, but I am extremely happy, contented, living in Thanos. Um, I'm, it's a beautiful area. That's, that's that's good news. That's good news. So go on then, because we've been asking people this all all morning for you. When have you, to mark ten years of the happiness index? Uh, when have you been happiest in the last ten years? When when, you, when I ask that question, well, what's the first it, thing that springs it, it, into your mind? 
pull the the um, date in November 2012 when I married my wife. I have to say that she's listening. Um, <laughs> Go on then. What's your wife's name, Brendan? Uh, uh, Lisa. She's listening. Lisa uh, in the other room. Um, uh, we are. Somebody's texting you, congratulating you. For, and I think the other thing we're happy about is, you know, we've both had bits of illness in our life and survived it. We've now survived the pandemic. We're coming out of the pandemic. Um, and so I think we've got a lot, personally, we've got a lot to be thankful for. I think people in Kent have a lot to be thankful for. Kent is a beautiful county. It is. I mean, let's be honest. You're right. There are worse places to be in the world than down in Kent. Uh, just finally, uh, Sandy down in South Hams, um, apart from being constantly giddy, living in the, the happiest place in, in the UK all the time, when have you been happiest in the last 10 years? Oof, to be honest, every day is a joy. Oh, <laughs> I think what, what, what I, the time that I was most happy was when my children were born, probably. Um, and what's been hard recently is not being able to see them. Yeah, and I think uh, all, all the, the happiness index, when they publish the next one, I think we'll see a big uh, spike in uh, in happiness and life satisfaction as we emerge from that and we get to see friends and family. And we get to visit both Kent and the South Hams uh, because, uh, yeah, the, both those things are very, very happy. Thanks so much for that. That's Sandy Marshall from the South Hams Society in down in Devon and uh, Brendan Martin runs the Broadstairs Beach House in Thanet in Kent. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.